Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Ronald Koeman has this afternoon been sacked as Everton manager and Martin O'Neill slash Roy Keane press conferences have just lost 25% of their content. Thanks for checking out Monday's well. Second Captain's podcast. Hi Murph, Ken Simon, how y'all doing? Hello, Hello everyone. How are you? Oh, well, I think the next one is not going to be shy of content. I mean, the next Martin O'Neill, Roy Keane press conference. I mean, I'm sure. Soon, I'm sure their their silence won't be won't be ongoing. It's nothing to do with the manager at Everton. It's just Everton. I was going to make the point that Cumin's predecessor didn't enjoy a great relationship with. Well, the start, it started team. with him, didn't it? Yeah, so it's not. A, maybe it's just a poison chalice. Whoever, a poison chalice, I should say. Whoever takes over is going to be destined to be locked into a never-ending war of words over the state of James McCarthy's hamstring, groin, yeah. and whatever else is ailing him. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Everton thing, they did have, there was a time when they had four of our players, um, including Gibson, McGeady, obviously Coleman, and... I don't want to get in there what I want. McCarthy, um, Gibson busted a cruciate playing for Ireland, Seamus Coleman snapped his leg in half playing for Ireland, James McCarthy has had one or two issues. Um, Who was the other one, McGeady? Well, nobody had much use for him, turned out, so... uh, so I don't think he was the cause of much of the friction. We're talking Champions Cup rugby on this podcast, but the Cumin news broke pretty much the moment we'd posted today's football show, Ken. So we didn't get a chance to react to it then. Are you surprised at all that Everton pulled the trigger? No, no. I mean, the surprising thing is, is, is that it maybe took them until two o'clock to announce it. Uh, I mean, it was clear that they, they um, that that Cumin had reached that point of, of no return. So the question was why... You know why have they even persevered for this long? Is it a? You mean right through Monday morning? Is there (laughs) is there a contractual problem here? Is it is it a case of Cumin has some kind of contract which which makes it uneconomical for Everton to to sack him? And I think that might have been an argument until now, but they've reached a point where. It was yeah, they've decided this this can't really go on. Seventh place last season. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's but seventh place is kind of a treacherous place. A lot of teams that finish in seventh place end up falling out of there. Uh, <laughs> that's actually been a bit of a pattern if you look back over the Premier League, because it's kind of 
you're not that good, but you think you are maybe a bit better. Didn't West Ham finish seventh under Slavin Bilic? It's a great, it's, it's a great position with which to raise the expectations. Of it's your the supporters. hope that kills you, basically. Well, and they spent, what you should call yeah. seventh place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they spent a lot of money this um, summer, also, which well, well, would lead you to believe that they were looking at top six. That they were, and I, I mean, and that was. I mean, I th- I'm pretty sure we spoke about it at the beginning of the season. It was oh, you know, Everton have have um, got in a lot of players here, and they've got in some some decent looking players and you know assuming they build on last season's momentum but they've they've had this problem that you see currently with a team that has a star player who leaves um it happened to Tottenham when Bale left it happened at Liverpool when Suarez left and it's happened at Everton when Lukaku uh left I mean this is a player who was scoring nearly half of their goals it's a lot to make up now they managed to you know bring in a good few players to replace him but it turns out they can't really fit those players together. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like you, we've got Rooney and Davy Klassen and we've got Sigurdsson. We've now got three guys for one position in our team and none of them can really play anywhere other than this one, <laughs> this one position. Maybe Rooney could play up front as a striker, but, you know, if you've got Rooney up front as, a, as your striker, you know that there's going to be a lot of other players having to do a lot of running. Can you pair Rooney with Sigurdsson? There's, a, there's an element of slow motion here. You know, are, are you really going to use the two of them together? Mm. Everton have found that they, they can't really get, get any chemistry. Is that Koeman's fault, though? Is that not Steve Walsh? Isn't he director of football there? Mm. I don't know exactly how much input Koeman has into all the signings. Well, again, this, this used to be such a cut-and-dried area in that, oh, the manager's signings have been bad, and now it's a case of, well, does the manager even sign these players? And it seems to be, now that signings are more collaborative in terms of the manager says, I want X, Y, and Z, and the um, recruitment department says, well, we've actually been looking at A, B, and C, although Y isn't bad. You know, maybe we could uh, maybe we could work together on some targets. And it, it appears... Uh, from what people say about this, that Sigurdsson and Klassen were both Kuman signings. So they, they were the they were the two that he was looking for, um, and he got. And neither of them has has yet succeeded. I mean, Klassen's been been has disappeared effectively. It's it's a, it's a classic case of, oh, this guy looked okay in the Dutch league, but he's in the Premier League now, and he can't he, he can't take it. He's too lightweight, etc., etc., etc. I mean, it could just be that he hasn't played yet in, in a team which remotely resembles any team he's previously played in, where he, you know, would know that there were players moving around him into position to receive the ball. You know, he was in a team, a fairly organized team under Peter Bosch at Ajax, and it was it was like that, and obviously they were a strong team in their in their league. It goes into Everton, and nobody really knows what they're doing. And he struggled, and you know I wouldn't I wouldn't write him off, but like he obviously hasn't had a, a an impact at all from the beginning. And Sigurdsson, kind of this situation with Rooney, it's like who's who's supposed to be the playmaker in this team? You know, um, again has has struggled. We've seen that he's been a good player in the Premier League, but. Only in teams when it's been when it's been all around him, which Everton so far for him hasn't been. I mean, when he went to Tottenham, he also struggled there, and went back to Swansea, which is the only club that he's really played well for in, in the league. So, I mean, you know, as as with both Liverpool and, and Tottenham, found when they brought in lots of players to replace the big player who was gone, they were worse the following season, <clears throat> and most of the players who who were signed didn't work out, but some of them did. I mean, Tottenham got Eriksson, Liverpool got Lallana. Somebody will 
work out. <laughs> just, just not in time for Ronald Koeman to have his job saved. Not in time for not in time for Koeman. No, it's uh You don't sound too sympathetic. Well yeah, I mean how can you be sympathetic? You know, Koeman was Koeman left Southampton for Everton because he thought, Oh, here I am. It's all coming up Ronald Koeman. You know, I'm I'm climbing the tree. And you know, there were there were times at Everton last season he, he, when he was sort of talking about the next step for him, you know, maybe Barcelona one day, of course it is normal to want to manage Barcelona. You know, I was a club legend in Barcelona. You know, maybe I, maybe he could manage Barcelona. Well, you know, there's snakes and there's ladders. Um, but, but you know, Ronald Koeman has always sort of played the game that way in the sense that he's he's never stayed a huge amount of time at any given club. It's always been very fairly transactional. It's just business. So I'm sure he's going to be able to pick himself up dust himself down and carry on after today before we leave the football got an email here from John Pender Denmark Boozers hi lads just returned from a weekend in Copenhagen was able to do a bit of recon for the upcoming match regarding the pubs thank you John very clean city big work John thank you very much very clean city easy to get to town from the airport via metro and basically everyone speaks English (laughs) (laughs) this guy should be working for Lonely Planet this is really searing clean city a very clean city plenty of very clean what's weird with it plenty of pubs bars and eateries around the city and I would recommend Max Burger for very tasty fast food you can order using touchscreen so no need to talk to anyone when pished oh nice great everyone takes debit cards so no need for cash I found two that's probably bad advice uh, say when there are a number of thousands of mm. Irish fans all assuming they can use cards I, I just I don't know but listen I haven't been there John, what, I'm talking through this my you-know-what. Like, is there anywhere in Europe that that is not true to say about at this point? <laughs> Everywhere takes debit cards, so no need for cash. I found two pubs that sold a litre of beer for around €7. Euro. Heidi's Beer Pub and Butcher's. So that's Heidi's mm. Beer Pub. Now, there you go, Ken. This is specific information. And Butcher's. €7 Euro for a litre sounds pretty reasonable compared to... How many pints in a litre? Like two and a bit? No, less than two. A, little, a pint is a like five. Under two. Yeah. A little five, under 568 two. 568 yeah. millilitres, I think. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, guys. That's right. And of course, Seven I'm sure that's good. That's that's good, on From, you know, Land's End to John O'Groats, those prices are competitive. John Pender's not finished, Murphy. Oh, sorry. And of course, I'm sure they won't increase their prices when the football fans are in town because if, it's, if there's one thing I found out over the years is the publicans have their customers' financial interests at heart. Love the show. Thanks very much, John. How much for that one, John? Thank you, John. Fair play. I hate to make anyone listening feel painfully envious of the World Service members out there, but we only went and had bloody Colm Tobin on Ken Early's political podcast last Friday, talking about the prospect of Catalan independence, no less. You see, the real bad luck was not being involved in either... Spain was not involved in either the First World War or or the Second World War, just like our uh, own yourselves. And um, any country that came into being in that sort of strange way was 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 as a result of those treaties that that that, that arose after the First World War. Mm. But Spain was a separate place, so um, it, it just hasn't been lucky. I mean, the hope is, I think, that it will be lucky once, that sometime in the next hundred years, that they will find a Spanish government weak enough, or they will hold the balance of power, or they will um, something will occur that will allow them to make their way as an independent country. A giant of Irish writing. Colm Tobin was a joy to listen to. Yes, Ken? It's interesting that, <clears throat> excuse me, it's interesting that bit was picked out, actually, because uh, that's one of the things people got onto me about. Unlucky not to be involved in the First and Second World Wars. A bit of a mixed bag there, I'd say. You know, <laughs> I mean, good in some ways, maybe not some others. Also, Ireland was involved in the First World War, although I think 
going to be meant to refer there to the second only. Mm-hmm. And as for the countries that did arise from that uh, post-war treaty period, a lot of them aren't around anymore. Or Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Poland is still there, but it has moved quite substantially mm. to in one direction. So yeah, that one, uh, sliding doors uh, everywhere. Well, in fairness, Kent, the non-World Service members listening here aren't in a position to judge at the moment, one way or the other, what Colm Tobin was talking about, because they haven't signed up. You know what to do. It's not a bad time to sign up, actually. We're preparing to bombard your eardrums with Ireland-Denmark build-up over the next couple of weeks, including the next episode of the Players' Chair, which will feature Ireland's greatest ever goalkeeper, Shea Given. Possible guest slot for John Pender as well. John Pender's travels, yeah. yeah. We've also got our 1,000th podcast around the corner. That will be a very special show, exclusively available to World Service members. Uh, so you can go and sign up now on secondcaptains.com for just a five a month plus five. Let's talk Champions Cup. Owen Redden is listening in. Jerry Thornley is in studio. Hi, Jerry. How you doing? Very well, thank you. Munster's win, you could argue, is was, was, possibly more important to them in some ways than, than Lancer. Certain, certainly in terms of them probably needing it at home and mm-hmm. give, given everything surrounding it and Anthony Fault the... Anthony Foley anniversary and everything. There was a lot. There was a lot. It felt riding on that game, and mm. it was bloody tense for quite a long time. I thought we were going to have our first ever. Has there been a nil-all draw in the Heineken Cup? I don't know. Funny enough, um, about a minute and a half before Conor Murray's try, yeah. um, a colleague to my left said, "Jerry, has there been a nil-all draw in the European <laughs> Champions Cup before?" And when you're under pressure to file for the internet, you don't need questions oh, and no. research like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a great sense of relief when Conor Murray broke the deadlock. Put it that way. I actually was thoroughly absorbed by the game. I yeah. thought, you know, for nil all, I thought it was full on, very fascinating. It was a bit one-dimensional. It was just a trench warfare along the gain line and, you know, a lot of one-off carries and trying to batter each other into submission and making the most then when you're camped in the opposition line and both teams defended heroically. I mean, it, conditions were foul. I don't think that necessarily came across on TV. Like you it, won- it never does on TV. No. It's funny because I was actually watching it with a friend and we're thinking, God, that... This is the same, actually. I think with the Leinster game to an extent as well. It didn't just doesn't look that it never looks that horrific on TV. It no. looks a bit grim, a bit like oh, you wouldn't fancy being out there playing mm. sport. But mm. I don't know if it ever conveys how, how bad the wind is, for example. No, and whatever mistakes we made as rugby riders a couple of years back when they made the new stadium, we decided we'd have our. Um our press box at the front of the upper tier and so you're quite exposed to the elements so you're well aware of what the conditions are like and if you look to the flags at one end they were really fluttering and the wind seemed stronger on one side slightly diagonal it was swirling there were sheets of rain coming down um, bar was like a ball of soap and uh, it was it was an extraordinary game in that sense full on um, and I thought Munster did really well to come through it's funny like you know you see Sexton doing what he did for Leinster and you see Murray doing what he did for Munster like Conor Murray is just a world class rugby player if he hadn't been a scrum half I think he could have been an out half or a centre or a full back and he was involved he's a really good rugby player yes it's almost yeah. irrelevant that he goes in and scrum half yeah. yeah he can do that fine but exactly yeah. he would have done anything in any sport yeah he just has that sense of time and space brilliant and on his feet so very well calm. balanced natural footballer good high eye hand feet coordination on top of which now he's got all this experience in the bank and he just makes good decisions and it's the little things like for the second try the mall is not going well on the blind side the ball goes loose but Murray secures the ball and that keeps the move going and then when um, the ball is trucked up under the post and the bill up to Conway's try Murray goes in to do the clear out he does an awful lot of donkey work as well and his strength close in is so invaluable He's got to be the best scrum half Ireland Irish rugby's ever produced. Well, I think we've got a good person to answer that question. What do you reckon, Owen? Thanks for that, Jerry. Yeah, I'm <laughs> close to hanging up here. <laughs> You're the uh, second no, best, Reza. He, he was great at the weekend again. I think you know. I think Jerry's nailed it there. Um, 
you know, he's, he's in a bit of, as a scrum half, you have to have a lot of composure in terms of not forcing yourself onto games either. And, and the game, he, he's got that in abundance. You know, he, he's confident enough himself to deliver what's needed at all times. And if that not be too much, if that be staying in the line and make a tackle or make a decent pass, that's fine. And then it's through those kind of, it's through that composure that leads to tries like that at the weekend where he's still in the moment, he's been in the game, he's not half a chance and he's gone. And, and you know, without that try, I think, like, Rassing has, has uh, basically played the game perfectly in terms of keeping it so close. Um, like, that's what you need to do to go to Tom Park. You, you, need to, you need to create a bit of doubt. Um, and I think just as the doubt was seeping in and the pressure was going to build on those monster players, I think Connor uh, alleviated for them. I know uh, I don't focus only on the out halves, and, and it was a day for the fours as much as anything. But I think a lot of praise is is heading in Keaton's in direction. Keaton, right? yeah. There was a moment when he missed that kick in front of the goal, in, in front of the mm-hmm. post towards the end. You would think, oh, is there a bit of the old, a bit of the the oldie and Keatley shakiness about that? And then suddenly he bombs his amazing kick to touch, and he's smiling after kicking it <laughs> at the ludicrousness of carrying off the more the more difficult skill. I was talking to you before we came on air, Jerry, about the Anthony Foley documentary, mm. and you were reminded then that Keatley was partly the lightning rod for the bad form at that stage, and, and it's not that long ago since he got booed on mm-hmm. his home turf. Seems to seems to be certainly he looked rejuvenated at the weekend. He's in a different place. And funny, I was interviewing Felix Jones last week as well, and his take on it was that with Anthony Foley's passing, it's given a new perspective to rugby down in Munster, amongst the Munster squad, and they um, they keep rugby in its place. They, they're a bit more relaxed playing rugby now because they realise there are bigger things in life than rugby, uh, more important things like family and well-being and health and so forth. And it's actually a, a sor- it should be a source of enjoyment to play rugby and as, as well as a source of pride. And... He, Ian Keatley, just become a father for the first time as well four weeks ago. So he's got a lot of things to put rugby in perspective. And he now knows how to go with the punches better than he did before. He admits that. So that when he doesn't get as rattled by missing a kick. And it turned out to be a very good penalty to miss because it meant from the restart they were still in the opposition half. He found that very good touch in the corner and that effectively led to the second try. And then preposterously, of course, he, he lands the right-handed touchline conversion to go to his left-hand one, yeah. having missed one from in front of the post. But it was a good one to miss. You know, it's not that there's an old Ian and there's a new Ian. Like, players become the product of, of ups and downs in their career. And for him to be out there playing like that on Saturday is a testament to him, as opposed to trying to pinpoint, you know, where will he be, where will he be next. Like, he's gone through all that. He's grown. And, and what you see now is a product of all those, all those times. Like, you'll see young players playing who've never been through ups and downs. And you won't really know how they're going to react. Um, in the future, whereas you can look at Ian and say, look, if he plays badly next week or the week after, you know that he's got this type of resilience in his, in his, in his locker. So more than trying to worry him that something might return, I think that it's more looking and, and, and congratulating him on being the type of player who's you know, played in Munster and had serious pressure on him in Munster and managed to come through and play like he played on Saturday, um, you know, albeit missing the kick. But as Jerry said, he steps up a minute later and kicks a harder one, I think. You've got a very resilient character there now, and I think mm. it bodes well for him going forward. He deserves the plaudits for, for getting to where he is now. And I don't mean like playing for a team. I just mean being the guy who hasn't had it easy and still delivering for, for at that level. And you know, and he comes across as a very reflective character, as quite a nice guy. He's very honest in interviews, and even when he's going through bad form, he does interviews, and he talks about the form he's in and how difficult it's been. So I would have worried, say, 12 months ago that he was almost too nice to come through this sort of challenge. 
because even his, say his body language, if he misses an easy kick, it shows on his face. It he kind of just puts a lot of his personality out there. He obviously can't help it. And you sometimes think those aren't the sort of guys who are tough and resilient, but actually there's no relationship between those two things, you know, being honest and being open and then actually being tough, tough inner mentally. Yeah, yeah and I don't think you are honest and open if, if you're not secure in yourself. You know what I mean? Like you don't come out and start saying how crap you're yeah. playing unless you're pretty confident that you're going to play well again in the future, you know? And I think it's it's easy to to kind of assume somebody's a certain way, but I think if they're being open and honest and willing to talk to you all the time, I think this so, and, and I don't think being nice or, or anything has got anything to do with it. I think, um, you know, having the ability to speak about what's going on and, and reflect on it and talk about it is a huge part of being able to deal with it uh, going forward and, and um, you know, managing to stay in the game rather than just ignoring it and pretending that you're playing well, for example. You know, that person will never turn it around. So I think um, you know, I've been really impressed with him because of his ups and downs. Um, and there's plenty of other players who'll have those downs and, and disappear into the sunset and you know we'll never talk about them again um, but I think he deserves the credit for where he is today Jerry, would you be worried about Munster a little bit in terms of what could potentially happen if there are any, if there's an injury or two particularly say to Clane or Kilcoyne in particular mm-hmm. in the front row or the second row and we haven't yet hit midwinter um, that would be my big concern about Munster. They're, they're working really hard to get these results and they're still in every competition, but with winter to hit and the front five a little bit threadbare, that's my main concern. Klein certainly makes a big difference, as does Scott Farley with Lens. He just gives that bit more ballast up front of that tight five. Killer had an extraordinary game and Sorry, he was having an extraordinary season. I mean, he, I think he put in a 76-minute shift against Rasslin in those conditions. It was, And he scrummed really Scrummaging well too. was really good. Really good, good yeah, yeah. as it's been all season. He's having a phenomenal season and yet he might not make the Irish 23 against South Africa. So, so, so rich are the options at loose head with Jack McGrath and a rejuvenated Keane Healy as well. So he's very important to them. Obviously, Conor Murray, fingers crossed, he remains as resilient as he always has been pretty much throughout his career. Um, say for the end of last season with that nerve injury neck and look how much Munster missed him in the semi-final in Europe and the final of the Pro 14. He's their most important player, I think. Mm. And there's a few other ones, Zebo as well, had a fine game in conditions that were not tailor-made at all for a full-back. If that pass to early goes to hand, we're talking about the try of the season. Um, and yeah, you're right, It's it's there are key men. In pretty much, I think, of all the Irish problems, the ones that best equipped to cope with injuries to key men are undoubtedly Leinster because their squad depth is so much the best. But you're right, it would be a worry if Munster lost any one of those key men. But we've got to remember, Ian Keatley was not their first choice out half. Would have been Tyler Blaindale playing on Saturday had he been fit. Oh, and how impressed were you by Leinster's win in Glasgow? Yeah, I was very, very impressed, to be honest. I think, um, you know, especially because I'd seen Exeter in Glasgow the week before and I'd seen how... how effective Glasgow were, um, sorry, extra were in defending um, Glasgow, you know, um, and I think Leinster were, were equally as effective at the weekend. And then, you know, when you flip it around, you look at how, like, extra were in the Glasgow um, 22 and numerous times and literally could not get across the line. And then you look at the, the finishing Leinster had at the weekend and, and, you know, really good plays, like plays that, that make sense against a really, really hard defence executed really well and they look really simple um that try that johnny got was was great from fardy you know real textbook play against against a, a blitz defense and i think like as you progress in this competition you're going to play against teams with brilliant defenses and like you look at saracens last year um and how like for example 
uh, Claremont suffered against them in the final, even though they're a broken rugby team. And I think the reality is, against certain teams in this competition, um, Leinster had the same problem against Scarlets in the semi-final of the Pro 14, which is you're going to have to kick, right, because teams come so hard and they're so well defensively organised, like Munster are. And when you end up kicking, it obviously means you end up defending more. And if you can't lift your defence and, and have it as good as, say, the likes of Saracens or Munster and have a system that is as aggressive that can keep you in the game or keep you defending for 10 or 15 minutes and you actually end up on top of where you were when you started that, that defensive period of the game, then you won't actually go on and win the trophy. So I was, just, I was, just, I was impressed with Leinster for two reasons. One, it was a great result to, to, to go and get over there. Yes, there were some individual missed tackles. I think they spoke on TV about you know defence system errors or, or missed tackles. But overall, they caught Glasgow behind the game line on the numerous occasions and their defence looks way more aggressive than it was last year. And I think they are in a position now um, like they were against Munster, where they can, you know, Munster had scored three tries, but they were all kind of quirky tries. There was no real phase play built against them. And I think they're in a position now where they're able to attack, which we know they've been able to do. But I think they're getting to a point where their defence is actually good enough to just defend for 10 or 15 minutes and end up on top of a team they're playing against. And I think that was evident that we've been, they're more aggressive. Um, you know, and they're just buying into it more. Everybody is. And I think the system that Leo and Stuart are trying to implement takes a while for people to actually really believe how hard they want them to go. And I think you can see that right now. I think they're definitely buying into it more and they're getting more yards out of their offense, which is, I think, the key to actually win the trophy. You know what I mean? It's great for the group right now but to actually win the trophy. You need, you need a brilliant defense um, because you won't be able to just attack every game um, because you'll end up coming up short eventually. The one thing I think is really different from last season, Owen, is those try. You mentioned the Sexton try there, he looped around and made it look so simple and easy at the end, which is always a really good sign because obviously the team are working really hard to make that the end play for the try. But it almost looks as if they don't have to work as hard for their scores as they did last season, or as an awful lot of teams in the European Cup have to work for their scores. It, it, it's it's like the mechanics are are flowing now that the tries and the points are coming easier than for the opposition and particularly in the last three games they've really ramped it up over the last three games. Yeah, I think their basics in terms of how they carry, how hard they're working on the ground, how quickly their their fellow teammates are in over the ball, and how quickly the ball is gone is a huge part of that. Like extra literally pounded the Glasgow line for for phase upon phase last week and eventually or the week before and eventually bullied their way over. But as you said. Spencer didn't have that difficulty. And I think, um, you know, they're learning all the time. You know, like Scarlet have had a very similar defence um, to Glasgow in terms of how hard they come. And you saw Leinster in the semi-final last year. Um, and then I was talking about a progression from that semi-final to the Munster game, who also have a very organised, very hard-pressing defence. And then you talk about, you know, we, after the, the, the Munster game, there was still talk about, you know, handling errors under pressure. And then you move on to the Glasgow game. And I think they understand how to play against this defence now. They understand, you know, how clinical you be. They understand how fast the ball has to be to keep playing, you know, when to kick. They have a, they have a strategy when they're under pressure about getting the ball back if they need to kick. And also now they have that defence that if they do need to kick, they can then turn it around and put that pressure right back on the opposition. So I think on all fronts, they're building nicely. Um, it's obviously very early, but I think, Whereas last year they might have been missing a tool or two to actually go and finish the whole job. I think this year, if they keep progressing the way they are, 
you know, they'll they'll be um they'll be in a good place. And let's you know, let's be honest, it's not that we're gonna have you know, that our provinces are now favourites for Europe. We're kinda of back to the back to the stage where let's get really excited about the chance that we might win one and be honest about, you know, how amazing a journey it will be for the players from Munster or Leinster or Ulster to win this Heineken Cup. You know, it would be a huge journey and a huge it's not like it was a few years ago where it might almost be a failure to not win one. You know, we're in a different place right now, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't be excited about it and looking forward to how good the teams are, are and the potential they might, one of them might go and actually win this. Jerry, I don't know if you're watching the Australia-New Zealand game that was on Saturday morning, but normally when you go from watching one of those rugby championship, Quad Nations games to, to European rugby, in particular the decision-making in attack or people working off their instincts, there's this kind of jarring effect when you go back to European rugby and go, these guys aren't operating at the same level. I don't know if it was just the day that was in it, but they're probably the two smartest nations, usually Australia and New Zealand. And then I was watching Leinster afterwards and going, there isn't that gap anymore. Mm. And you saw that with the Lions too, and maybe with Ireland and England, and um, when they go to play these Southern Hemisphere teams. I just feel like in the last season in particular, that's, it's just changed completely. I don't know if it's that finally we've learned or it's the culture and what it is, but Leinster in particular and, you know, La Rochelle and, and Clermont and a few others, you just feel like that gap is closing now. Yeah, I agree. I watched the I watched quite a feast of rugby over the weekend. I watched that Australia All Blacks game and I think it was a good result for world rugby. I think it was good for Australian rugby. They badly need it because Australian rugby is in turmoil at the moment with Western force and legal cases and so on and that win was coming. South Africa very nearly beat them the time before. Okay, there was no Bowden Barrett playing at the weekend and I thought the All Blacks were treated a bit harshly by Wayne Barnes on occasion when when he takes a dislike to a team at a breakdown or whatever, that's it. He's made his mind up and you're you're in for an, a long afternoon of pain with Wayne Barnes as refereeing at times. And uh, But it was a good result for World Rugby and I think you're right. You look at the skill levels there. The skill levels I always find when you go from a rugby championship game or even sometimes watching Super Rugby to then watching rugby up in the Northern Hemisphere, it seems to be quite a drop-off. I, was, I thought that Lions tour was fascinating to see when you bring together real world-class players from the Northern Hemisphere, they can go down with little or no preparation and take on the All Blacks and emerge with a drawn series. I thought that was, on top of Ireland beating the All Blacks in, in November, I think it's very encouraging. And I think it's, these are good signs and there is a very high skill level in this tournament. La Rochelle, you mentioned, um, Claremont, Saracens, obviously, there's some really strong, potent sides in this tournament. And I agree with Owen that I think that Leinster are viable contenders and that's something to be very excited about. Um, the other thing they've added, I thought, to their game this season, maybe a bit more, was for them to go, when all, all else is up, with just a minute or left in the first half, to go to the corner and back your maul to score a try. Like, to turn down three points for Sexton to do that and go to the corner, you really you almost have to score a try. It's really, it's really rolling the dice and it's back in your pack and they delivered and that must, you, could, you could hear the celebrations on the pitch. So I think for them to have that up their sleeve as well, to have a potent maul to go to the corner and take on a team and score seven points just before half time away from home, having been 10-3 down, I thought that was the telling, the one was the telling point of the match actually. It was nice to see Keane Healy in, among the tries. Owen. We've obviously been talking a lot about the younger Leinster players. I don't know, there's a sense watching Keane Healy that I don't know if it was the neck injury, I'm sure it could have been, but that it, or the emergence of Jack McGrath, but the wind seemed to be taken out of his career quite a bit in, in the latter stages. Uh, he's still a relatively young man, though, and should have a few good years left. Did, would you have noticed that, that, that Keane Healy, maybe a year or two ago, yeah, was a little bit different from what he had been? to see. You know, all, all, all people close to Keane over the years would have you know, seen him um, you know, dealing with that injury and, and managing his way back to playing, and it wasn't easy for him. You know? And again, like Ian Keatley, you know, there's no old or new Kean. It's just like he's now the product of, of a really tough battle in terms of doing all his rehab, getting on top of his fitness, 
like you know and he's emerged now and he's, he's he's played really well and like you mentioned earlier how lucky Leinster were to have those two guys you know you've got possibly what a player who should have been starting for the Lions in the summer um, and you've got Keane you know so you know it's it's as as someone who watches I'm just it's actually so nice to see that that this has happened for him that he has dug in as much for as long as he has and you know almost banging his head, head against a brick wall trying to break through it and eventually he gets through and, and it's great to see him enjoying his rugby and playing so well at the moment like it really is uh, I think for all I think you know without even without even thinking about it from the outside but like even the 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 good feelings that will generate to all Keane's friends that play with him. Like, you know, he mightn't even realise it himself, but everyone knew um, how hard he was trying and everyone was, uh, will certainly be delighted. It'll give everyone a great boost to see him playing that well. And, you know, you, he's one of those guys you're kind of, you, when he was playing, you're like dying, he'd play well so you could just go well done for all the work you've done, you know. And I think finally that's going to get a chance to do that um, at the moment. You know, he's really picked it. He's really playing well and, and um, again, you know, what a, what a resilient character and someone great to have in your dressing room like that. Who You know, if tough times come down the road, this guy's been, been in the trenches before and he's come out and, and, and I can rely on him. Jerry, both yourself and Simon have touched on La Rochelle. They mm. look like the real deal against Ulster. Don't they? They really do. I wasn't surprised at all by that performance or that result. Um, that's their 25th sellout in a row at home. There's a, just a fervent buzz about rugby in La Rochelle. They open the gates five hours before kickoff and they keep them open five hours afterwards. It's <laughs> like a, it's a day out for the whole town. Um, they've got an extraordinary mix of power up front. Jason Eaton, the second row, they buy shrewdly. Victor Vito was just a phenomenal number eight. The best player pound for pound probably in the top 14 last season. He won it and he just carried on in that vein. They've got Tawira Carabarlo and Rene Ranger coming in December. Um, they're almost unbeatable at home. I think that if they got a home quarter final, they would be at probably favourites against any team in the competition bar Saracens. So they could shred the script and just announce themselves in Europe in their debut campaign like no other team has done before. But that being said, I still think Ulster are in this pool and I still think Ulster could beat them up in the Kingspan Stadium. Um, they were qu- depleted by quite a few absentees the weekend and Lee Liafano was a big loss. The game hinged to a large degree in his going off. But that being said, yeah, La Rochelle look, look very good back to come out of that pool. It was one of those games on where I know Ulster made some mistakes and a couple of the La Rochelle tries came from poor passing or poor handling, but you really couldn't put a whole lot of blame on the Ulster players. They were just being out-muscled and outplayed. Yeah, no, they're, they, um, you know, Leinster or La Rochelle are, you know, top top class at the moment. You know, they've got incredible players, Jerry says. They've got foreigners who literally look like they die for the jersey mm. already, which means they have a very strong culture. Um, and they've got this change-up onto the ball and this acceleration into contact that is unique at the moment when you watch all the teams, you know, and it's unusual that one team in, in a simple skill like that would be noticeably different when you see them on TV, but they are, you know, you see the scrum half passing the ball and he's passing it a yard and further in front of his man and, and the guy's accelerating onto it a bit more than, than other teams. And I think um, they've just really got that tempo thing going on at the moment. And they've, you know, a lot of teams with big players, you know, fall into the trap of thinking, oh, we don't need tempo, you know. <laughs> they seem to have realised that if you've got tempo and big players, it's going to be practically impossible to stop us, you know, and I think um, they've really bought into that. Um, Victor Vito, as Jerry said, was just, was just phenomenal at the weekend, and I think um, they're definitely one to watch. However, it's like I said, I think they may struggle with teams like Saracens, for example, when they would have to kick the ball. Um, against Quinns away, for example, they just ran everything from under their own sticks. You do that against Saracens, you're going to be losing by three or four tries pretty quickly. Then you're going to have to, you know, try and run the ball into a brick wall and it won't work. So 
you know, if they have to kick the ball, then their defence is going to be massively examined. And I think they're light years ahead in their attack, further ahead in their attack than they would be in their D. You know, a bit like Claremont, you know, look devastating in attack. And then Leinster can, you know, rip them apart pretty much in, in D for the second half last year in the quarter final. And then you see Leinster play against Scarlet a few weeks later and they can't. So I think, you know, in terms of defence, the French teams are still a little bit behind the likes of Saracens and that'll be a, a tough um hurdle for them to overcome uh, coming into the coming into the latter stages of the competition. Oh. But like it's never ending. Like you look at Leinster play Ulster this weekend and away to Glasgow again this week. I think, you know, we're in for another few weeks where we'll learn a lot about the team um domestically, you know, I think some of the games coming up are Mount Watering as well. I think um, you know, having this run and then into November internationals and then back into Europe, you know, you'd you'd be hoping that, you know, both for the Pro fourteen over the next few weeks and post the the autumn that uh the provinces are really in fine fettle after some really tough games in both competitions. Well, La Rochelle topped the top 14 last season. We must forget that. They're actually the best team in France over the course of the season. And this season in the stats, they've got the most metres per game, the most carries per game, the most line breaks per game, the most offloads per game. I think it's 22 offloads a match they're averaging. But yet they commit the most turnovers per game. So it's a high-risk game as well. And yeah, you could see them possibly floundering against something like Saracens, all right, for that reason. All right, exciting times, brilliant stuff. Jerry, thanks so much. Owen, thanks a million. Cheers, thank you. First of all, I'd like to welcome John Delaney here today. Trying to be critical is going to be impossible. Building a house, you build the foundations first, the chimney's the top, the chimney for us. It's international football. As well, to, to John Delaney, you know, um, uh, the pleasure, the entertainment, the organisation, the skills that you take to everybody is fantastic. But you don't have a chimney unless you've got a very strong foundation. Ailey Sheegan was in last week talking about the IRFU and they're advertising the women's national coach as a part-time gig now and the damage that that's going to do to the development of women's rugby. Don't know if you're reading about the legacy wristband campaign over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Gavin Cummins gives a good piece on this, protesting the IRFU's lack of respect and ambition for the women's game in Ireland. It took place on Sunday across all women's AAL matches. And not only there, in fact, I saw Lynn Cantwell, friend of the show, tweeted... Uh, about her newborn daughter. I want my daughter to grow up and be treated with respect whatever sport she plays. I support Legacy Campaign urging IRFU to support Ireland's ambition. There's a lovely Legacy wristband around the baby girl. Congratulations to Lynn, by the way, first of all. Congrats. Before we move off that point. And just on to the question that Gavin Kumsky ends with, not so much the question as the possible scenario. He says, if male professional players in Ireland wear the Legacy wristbands during next weekend's Interpro Games in Galway and Belfast, the Irish women will no longer have a protest. They will have a movement. So yeah. I don't know if that is a, a likely scenario. It's certainly getting more and more embarrassing as it is for the IRFU at a time when they don't really want to be publicly embarrassed given that they've got a World Cup to be bidding for. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I saw various clubs, including some in the UK, Wasps, Ladies, followed this legacy, hashtag legacy campaign. As Gavin is suggesting there, if the men get behind it, it's well, it's going to get written about a lot more. Um, it brings more pressure on the IRFU, as you say, at a critical point, as this World Cup 2023 bid comes in, I think it might might be the next step that's required because from what I've read and what I see on Twitter and elsewhere, the women are kind of unified and are, and are generating some momentum, so it just needs that next step. Murph, there was plenty of GA club action this weekend. I know one fixture in particular caught your eye. Well, a tempestuous I mean, I, affair. I, I, I think we just, we, we ran out of time on Friday to preview the Leinster Intermediate Football Championship game uh, played in Castle Bellingham between Laos representatives O'Connell's and Carlo Champions. Yeah, Simon just edited out of the final cut. We did yeah. spend 10 minutes on it, but it didn't make it. Yeah. Well, 
it has nudged its way to the front of the uh, the news agenda uh, because now, and I should say, I'm leaning heavily on the reporting of Quivine Riley of the Dundalk Democrat here. So thank you, Quivine, for your sterling work on this particular story. But referee Noel McKenna from Kildare sent off ten players in this game. <laughs> ten, ten players, and he also ordered off two Muirishka, uh bringing the number of people he dismissed <laughs> to twelve. Which I. I'm going to stick my neck on the block here on and say that that is a record. Are we talking about the... Because I often think referees should do this. Was there an all-out brawl? And oh, no. the referee decides I'm going to pick out... Rather than picking out one transgressor per team, which often happens, yeah. I'm actually going to send off everyone who should be sent off. No. But you're saying it wasn't just one big melee. No, no, no. It was like it's, it was a, a real mix and gathering of straight right. reds, Couple two of yellow yellows, cards. Black cards. That's really impressive. Cards. It's it a lot more impressive than the melee. It is, really. I mean... I mean, yeah, well, I mean, we'll go through some of the detail, yeah. but O'Connell's uh, club chairman, David Nisi, said, it was far from a dirty game, <laughs> but the, re- the referee just lost control. Oh, and he just lost control. The <laughs> whole like game he had control to me. Has yeah. had, had, had an, an iron, iron fist. Yeah, grip of this game. The, uh, the whole game was Sludden-esque, which coming from the mouth of a loud man is, well, you might have to explain slud- Sludden-esque you to You remember, of course, the 2010 Leinster Senior Football Final where Joe Sheridan threw a ball into the back of the Louds net, denying them their first semester title in whatever it was, 51 years. Um, the referee on that occasion, Martin Sludden, uh, assaulted numerous times as he left the field by irate Loud supporters. And yet Loud were the ones who wanted to be allowed back into the competition instead the next day on being, the basis of yes, fair play. <laughs> instead of Loud being ejected from the tournament for 10 years... Uh, they did, instead uh, harboured a grudge about the refereeing and everything that happened in that game, uh, which continues to this day. So the scenes afterwards sound rather odd. The O'Connells had arranged uh, for post-match food for their visitors and for the fans of their visitors. Fair Jews. But in a scene that typified, and by typified I mean defied all of my expectations, expectations of how this would actually play out, both teams dined together. O'Connell's club chairman Nisi again. Both teams got together in one of the dressing rooms and ate together, sharing some banter. There was all of 30 men in the dressing room eating, and I think that that in itself showed the true spirit of our games. (laughs) Which is certainly one way of looking at it. Uh, Apparently the game should be forfeited by any team who has less than 11 players on the field. So, But it's all epidemic anyway, because O'Connell's kept 11 on the field. Yes, I said epidemic. Yes, I know. And uh, they only had four players sent off. Their opponents had six pairs sent off. So the game is going to be awarded to O'Connell's or the result is going to stand. Either way, I want to see O'Connell's the replay. Well done on your discipline, lads. Discipline one of four. I know. At the end of the day, Simon, the team who keeps their head in a situation <laughs> like this almost always wins. Always win. so We're back go. tomorrow and all week on the World Service. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Murph. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you, Simon. Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, thank you, Ken. Thanks for listening. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.